Welcome to Act Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Along with more than half a million American deaths, lockdowns, and federal mandates, the COVID-19 pandemic brought with it unprecedented government spending and economic disruption. In this episode, Acton Institute's research fellows, Dan Huger and Dylan Pommen, evaluate the economic and moral implications of the COVID relief bill. They discuss the true purpose of a stimulus package, the Biden administration's COVID relief bill itself, and its effects on the future economy, how the American people should react morally, and if stimulus checks could have been rolled out in a more effective way. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome. This is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate of the Acton Institute, and today I am joined by... Dylan Pommen, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a Research Fellow here at Acton. Dylan, there is a new sort of bipartisan consensus that, like, we need stimulus and we need lots of it. We're going to talk a little bit about sort of what is stimulus, what has been sort of a lot of the underlying concerns, um, what has been – what are sort of the moral implications of some of this stuff, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I think we should start – just with the basics, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, what – when people talk about COVID stimulus or, you know, these stimulus checks, what in particular are we referring to? Is it just the checks people are getting in the mail or direct deposit or is there more to it than that? So when these – this has been a series of bills and uh, President Joe Biden has recently proposed a $1.8 trillion uh, economic stimulus in the form of, of what he's calling the American Families Plan – And this represents kind of an extension of the unprecedented wave of government spending and proposed spending, which began last year in March under then-President Trump uh, with the CARES Act, which was uh, $2.2 trillion. And then it continued in this March with the American Rescue Plan, which was $1.9 trillion. And then uh, there's a proposed uh, American Jobs Plan at $2.2 trillion. And the grand total of all this spending and proposed spending represents basically a third of the size of the entire economy of the United States. Um, so those are those are those are sort of the legislative pieces. They've got a lot of parts to them, um, and they're all being referred to as stimulus. Right. And John Maynard Keynes. Um, was an early 20th century economist. And kind of was, founder of macroeconomics. Right? Yeah, modern macroeconomics. Yeah. And a lot of his thinking is, is the root of this sort of uh, idea for a stimulus proposal. Um, and you got to think like stimulus, it's kind of, you know, a stimulus is supposed to provoke a response. Mm-hmm. And this is a government stimulus, this is government spending designed to provoke a response in the private sector through either, you know, fiscal or monetary policy. And the idea that is that it's necessary to raise aggregate demand for all the goods and services that are around that uh, in a recession, there's a danger that the economy won't self-correct. This is Keynes's theory. Um, 
bracket off how useful that actually is. Sure. But, you know, this is sort of the argument that's made. So people got to have money to spend in order for businesses to make money, to then provide them with jobs. Um, and when you're looking at something like Keynes did of the, the Great Depression, um, they were scrambling for ways to figure out how to get people employed again. Yeah. Right? And they're looking at, you know, this staggering unemployment, there's decreased productivity, and there's just patterns of lower growth that they're thinking – if we don't if we don't inject something into this, uh, it's not gonna. It's it, you know there's a chance that this persists and continues to spiral downward. Yeah, Keynes famous quote. Uh, he he was criticizing those who said, well, you know, in the long run, this is all going to correct itself, right? I mean, there's certain principles, the way economies work, and uh, he said, well, that may be true, but in the long run, we're all dead. Yeah, um, and he meant this. Uh, you know, I and I think there are m- many legitimate reasons to disagree with his overall theory, but uh, his point was that there's a moral obligation to help people when they're suffering now, Um, and he thought this was a way to do that. And this is the logic more recently of sort of the Economic Stimulus Act of 2008, um, which was, you know, a mere $152 billion, (laughs) Um, or the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, also a mere $700 billion. And then the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in 2009, um, which is, you know, uh, $831 billion. So once again, bipartisan, bipartisan. measures as yep. well for, for starting in the Bush administration. In the Bush and, administration. And then continued continuing, in the Obama administration. Yep, continuing yep. the Obama administration. And the idea there was um, sort of in line with what Keynes was thinking. We had an economic contraction. We had, you know, uh, there was fears of another sort of Great Depression um, that Keynes was dealing with in his lifetime. And uh, that's that's a little different than where we're dealing today. Um, well, we've that, got economic how, how is growth. it different? We've got economic growth. Like the International Monetary Fund currently projects economic growth in the United States to be 5.1% in 2021 – and 2.5% in 2022. Um, we've got a labor shortage. We've okay. got soaring commodity prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bull market in stocks. Like, mm-hmm. this doesn't seem to fit the criteria. Yeah, and what – my understanding is Keynes also recommended that people do the opposite in times of high growth, right? So mm-hmm. if anything, uh, a strict Keynesian perspective would say, well, now is the time – to take a step back. Yep. Um, and that is that is not happening. Yeah. So there was a lot of economic dislocation, disruption. There was you know, unemployment, you know, uh, is still up, although less up than it was. We're, we're recovering there now as a result of the pandemic. And, well, partially as a result of the pandemic, partially as a result of government responses to the pandemic, you know, mandatory closures, mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of businesses couldn't have been open if they wanted to. Yeah, a lot of regulations. So partially government-caused, partially pandemic-caused, short-term economic disruption. But Mm -hmm. we're we're out of the way there, or at least the economy in aggregate is. Now, many people aren't. Many people are still unemployed. Many people are still struggling. So one one of the other ways that these have been pitched is that these are relief programs. Um... 
what are some of the elements here that have been that have been targeted towards individuals or businesses as, as a sort of relief measure for the economic disruption caused by the pandemic and by government policy in response to the pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been there's been loans for businesses. Um, there's been um, I mean, there's been stimulus for business as well. Uh, and then there's been there's been checks or, you know, deposits uh, to individuals. So this was a uh, at least for some people, a very big uh, reason uh, to vote and support for President Biden because mm-hmm. the um, Trump administration had managed to push through or at least approve uh, a $600 stimulus uh, to anyone who qualified uh, based on their uh, tax returns. Uh, um, second round. Second, was, yeah, yeah, it was a second round, I should say. That was that was not the first time, but it, it was, was second round. In it de- was not the first issuance December. of Trump right. bucks. Right, right. Um, uh, but there are a lot of people who said, no, we need 2,000, uh, not 600. Um, and and so they pushed for that, and Biden said, you'll get it, and, and then kind of walked it back and said, well, you know, 2,000 minus 600 is 1,400, and so that's what you're going to get. Um, and some people were upset even about that. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, but so it's been interesting. Um, one constant, I think, is that people like free money. Um, and now, as you said, a lot of people are hurting. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. A lot of people needed help. Um, and this is a way to potentially help them. Um, but I know that it's also far more complicated than that. So, you know, you looked into some of the details of these various bills, uh, you know, the names of these things. And it's true of any government proposal, always extremely deceptive, right? Like the CARES Act. So if you're against it, you don't care, right? Or the American Jobs Act. Don't you think Americans should have jobs? So American Families Plan. Families, yeah. Aren't you pro-family? So let's get into the details and, and, uh, you know, poke around a little bit more uh, because the the labels are often quite deceptive, I I think. That doesn't mean that there's, there's never anything there that might correspond, but there's usually a lot more than people realize. Well, one of the things we talked about, one of the one of the one of the things that has been in these bills is extended, amplified, juiced up unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that I think is very much related to our current labor shortage. There are a yep. lot of people right now who would lose those benefits if mm-hmm. they got a job. Mm-hmm. And you know, people respond to incentives. And if someone is getting their unemployment benefits, is let's say able to care for children as a right. result. Right. If someone is you know, if they were to re-enter the labor market, maybe they would just make just as much. Maybe they would make less because mm-hmm. these are very much beefed up unemployment benefits. So you got a lot of people who just are not participating in the labor force as a consequence of this. As many states around the country have reopened, many people are looking to hire workers. Yeah, so this is interesting because, I mean, for a variety of reasons, from an economic perspective, then you know, I don't really like the way economists use this term, but you could say this is, is very rational unemployment to the extent that it's related to these these stimulus bills and uh, expansion of benefits. And that if people have a better alternative, why wouldn't they spend more time with their kids or why wouldn't they, you know, keep working on their house or whatever the case may be uh, until they, they have to go out into the labor force again? Uh, also interesting is that this seems now to be almost a complete inversion of Keynes' original conception of a stimulus. His whole point was we want to reduce unemployment 
And you're suggesting, at least, that it, it's a contributing factor to continuing it and growing the unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. One of the other interesting consequences, I think, of these is uh, those loans extended to businesses. And there's a condition on these loans that they're spent, you know, a certain percentage of this is spent on payroll. And -hmm. if it's spent on payroll, keeping people employed, then those loans are forgiven. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that I've heard with talking to local businessmen that have utilized this to lock up talent, particularly if you're in an industry that has – Skilled labor, even if you don't have the work right now, even if because of the COVID disruptions, you're not able to sort of operate your business at normal capacity, it's still costly to go out and find talent. And if somebody's willing to pay you to keep that talent, even if that talent is idle in your industry or underutilized, That happens and that affects general productivity because these are people with skills that perhaps could have been hired by other firms Mm. um, that are now sort of – you know, the government is subsidizing firms keeping talent. Hmm. Um, So that causes like another strange sort of dislocation in the labor market. One of the other things we talked about are these these individual payments, these Mm -hmm. individual checks. What are the consequences of just injecting a lot of money (laughs) into an economy? I mean, there's a lot, right? You're going to – you know, a lot of the worries um, in my very nerdy circles are in terms of inflation, right? If you're just effectively – not actually printing money, but effectively you're increasing the money supply, increasing spending power. Um, It tends to get offset uh, as prices reflect the increased spending power of people. So the people get money, they now have more buying power, but now prices start to rise. And so they can buy less. Uh, And so these sorts of things often, uh, if there's no increase of productivity going along with it, don't actually increase wealth or well-being. Um, Another concern that I have about this, and and this applies to a lot of policies, is that, you know, these stimulus uh, programs and bills are federal programs. Um, And now, there is some means testing in terms of they base it on uh, people's uh, tax returns and that sort of thing. Yeah, the, the monopoly um, man is not getting a right, check. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, so far as we know. Um, <laughs> uh, and maybe he, you know, maybe there's an earmark in there somewhere. Uh, and and also people with children uh, received extra as well. So there there is some attention to particular need. Nevertheless, the amounts given does not vary based on cost of living. So if you live in New York City and you got that $1,400, that might not even cover one month's rent in a very small apartment. Whereas here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that might cover two months' rent. Yeah. Or let's say that you have roommates. Uh, you're, you're like a 20-something college student, something like that. Uh, well, that could be like Three or four months rent, you know, or look at like a, a small town with even even better cost of living than Grand Rapids. So the the just un, unintentionally when you just give people money like that, this is one of the problems I have with uh, universal basic in, income, with even with minimum wages, which doesn't give people money, but it sets uh, a, a federal uh, rate uh, for all wages everywhere. Uh, is it's not actually paying any attention to need, uh, and so uh, it completely. 
exists outside of the basic demands of justice, which is to render each what is due. Um, and part of that is a person's need in their situation. Uh, and so these and, – and there's there's cost to that. I'm not saying that necessarily the best alternative would be that, you know, we hire a million government workers to investigate everybody's particular situation, figure it out. I get that there's, there's complications. There's reasons why you have to simplify uh, to execute something like this. But it is interesting – to ask uh, and to think about that the people in the most dense urban areas, which as far as I can tell, were also the most affected by COVID-19, are the people who are effectively are getting the least amount of relief from any of these stimulus bills just because of the cost of living differences. Um, and so that's like a, there, there's a whole distribution side to this uh, that I think just gets gets lost in the, you know, the Twitter storm discussion uh, that we have about these sorts of things and certainly lost in the grand labels placed on these bills that, oh, we're helping American families. Well, maybe you're helping American families in like Iowa, but you are helping, you know, an American family in New York City four times less with the same exact measure. And the economic dislocation has been different in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Different parts of the country have had different restrictions. Different industries have been affected mm -hmm. in greater or larger numbers. Um, Throughout the country, so that's another 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 point at which that that subsidiarity principle, um, right? Would the, best the most be taken under the advisement. most local level of government or even local organizations and institutions are best equipped to deal with local needs. Now, when they find themselves insufficient to deal with the need, uh, the same principle says, well, a higher level of institution has some responsibility to step in and help. Um, and I think that's maybe to be charitable. The best justification I can think of for any of this is that, um, for example, on, this, on the state level, I know people uh, in Michigan uh, who had periods of unemployment last year due to the pandemic and it took eight months before they received any unemployment. Now, it was all backdated. You know, they got, they got a ton when they finally got it. But if they needed something in the meantime, they weren't getting it from the state of Michigan. They had issues with their claim. They had to appeal, all that sort of stuff. Um, and, the, and the system was just way overloaded uh, with the number of applications. And so, you know, there's at least a question there. Now, I, I think there's a lot of problems and a lot of other, you know, a lot of issues involved. But that's, you know, just taking things as they are. The question there to say, well, does the federal government have any responsibility to step in and help its citizens in those circumstances? Um, a, a case can at least be made. Um, so, yeah, there, there's just, it's, there's a, all the details make things very complicated, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about how this isn't in any sense a stimulus, according, right. to, the, yeah. according to Hoyle rules of stimulus <laughs> set by macroeconomics. <laughs> we've talked about how this is, in a sense, relief. It's had some unintended consequences. It's had some bad consequences. But you've pointed out, you know, there were – Local government failures. Mm -hmm. There was large economic disruption caused. Um, one of the other things that are in these bills are what I could call like national economic planning sort of things. You know, infrastructure bills, and what what is considered infrastructure is very broad. You have you have politicians tweeting out, right. childcare is infrastructure. You have right. people. Um, you know, encouraging, you know, anything under the sun is infrastructure. Uh, paying teachers to teach Zoom classes is infrastructure um, uh -huh. and all of this. But there is a very notion that like the Biden administration has taken this opportunity to sort of try to restructure 
the American economy in ways that it believes we should go in terms of maintaining international competitiveness, in terms of transitioning away from fossil fuels, mm-hmm. um, in terms of education reform. All of these sort of things are, are, are sort of built in and the idea of like this is an opportunity for us to sort of fundamentally restructure some of the American economy as all this dislocation is taking yeah, place. You found, I know you found a good um, quote from Biden or at least it was a, a reporter's account from Biden uh, after an international summit, something along those lines, where he referenced uh, the, the Chinese economy and the planning done there. Yes. This was from a story um, – uh, now Ferguson uh, okay. over at the Hoover Institution quoted quoted Joe Biden in March saying uh, when he was discussing with uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, sort of a, a, a Western version of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which was sort of an economic development initiative. And, and President Biden said that I suggest we should have essentially a similar initiative pulling from the democratic states, helping those communities around the world that in fact need help. So there, I mean, this is the Chinese model of development. The Chinese model of development is to leverage high amounts of government debt to invest in building up local industry to basically, you know, try to engineer a competitive an, an economy that's 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 a world power. Well, now isn't that how you know? China's been on the rise in the last few decades. Well, this is this is this is the debate. So there there are two things that have happened in China over the last thirty years. One is there was a market period beginning sort of late eighties, early nineties of market based reforms, where all of a sudden you know you know uh, a, a Maoist China was was a totally command and control economy and restrictions on business and trade. Those were relaxed sort of economic development zones were outlined. You had explosive mm-hmm. growth in some yeah, of these free cities. trade zones. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, people allowing to like keep and save wages. <laughs> um, those right. things that we, th- we take for granted as mm-hmm. in a developed Western country came at least in some form to many parts of China. And this is what I would submit was the, was the catalyst for economic growth. What we've seen – with Xi Jinping is the introduction of a different sort of model where, you know, you have um, former finance minister uh, in China, Liu Zhuai, um, thinks the situation is, quote, extremely severe with risks and challenges because mm-hmm. of all of this deficit-financed growth. And that's essentially what we're doing. To, I mean, there hasn't been a commiserate rise in taxes. We weren't yeah. running net positive revenues before any of this. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to sort of leverage this debt into a sort of national economic planning that hopefully leads to growth. What, what are some of the problems with that approach? Uh, I mean, there's – there's a lot of problems with that approach. Um, you know, again, we, we covered some of the possible justifications, possible good side of these bills. But as you've mentioned, they are just stuffed full of a lot of things that have nothing to do with the average American family getting a check. Mm-hmm. Um, and these sorts of things are problematic. They're problematic in terms of uh, the debt and the deficit. 
um, somebody has to pay that eventually. You know, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits uh, is uh, has Steve Martin. He was like the the host at the time, uh, and it's it's him and I believe Amy Poehler is his wife, and then. Um, Chris Parnell uh, is uh, the author of a self-help book and is like one page long. And all it says is, don't buy things you can't afford, <laughs> right? And the whole skit is Steve Martin saying, but what if I want it, <laughs> right? And they're just kind of trying to come up with reasons. Uh, you know, how do we get out of our financial, you know, how do we pay off all this credit card debt? How do we get into this? Uh, and then he just shows up and he says, well, maybe you shouldn't take out so much debt, and they just try to find every other answer <laughs> they possibly can. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of comical way to look at it. And, and governments are different than individuals. It's not that debt per se is always bad. Um, but at a certain point, you know, the, the mere interest payments on this debt are massive, uh, not to mention actually paying it down um, to the point where we're passing this on. Every, every debt that a government has... Uh, is future taxes, or at least future tax revenue. That's that's how the government gets money. Uh, I mean, I guess occasionally people pay to like visit a public park or something like that. You know, it's not. But hopefully, that's going back to the parks. I mean, who knows? But um, for the most part, it's through taxes. So this is our children's tax revenue or our grandchildren's tax revenue. We are spending it for them before they've even made a single dollar. There's all kinds of intergenerational responsibility that should go along with that, and we should think very hard about whether it's worth it every time we do it. Doesn't mean we never should, but we should We should probably be a bit more cautious than we currently are being. And I, I think, uh, you know, in the midst of a, a national crisis, perhaps even uh, widespread communal trauma over, a, you know, a, a very tragic year, uh, over more than a year now uh, of a pandemic and the loss of half a million Americans in 2020 alone, I think people are just ready for anything that could make them feel better. And unfortunately, people are capitalizing on that politically. Um, so I, I I think in those terms, I guess, that's a bit more of a moral, spiritual take uh, than an economic one, although um, I do think there are you know, economic underpinnings to it. Uh, but that's, that's my major concerns. You have a lot of desperate people who are, are very willing to agree to this because – they just, they just, everybody just wants some relief, right? Like in, in like a, a psychological sense, like we're sick of, you know, people have been anxious and depressed for a year and somebody comes along and says, well, we can help. People aren't really that disposed to look into the details at that point. They just say, well, I want to support the people that want to help and not support the people that don't want to help. And um, it, when you break it down and make it that simple, you lose all these details that are, are you know, in some cases as much or maybe even more than the check going to anybody's bank account. There's also a lack of sort of a historical memory. I mean, this is our, our recent sort of situation in terms of debt to GDP ratio. The only sort of analogous modern example we have of this is, is in 1945, the conclusion of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, we were at that, you know, we're now over. Um, we're now over 100 percent of debt to GDP. Yeah. And one of the ways that that was handled in the past is we had, you know, in the late 1940s, part of the way we got out of that debt was to inflate our way out. Mm-hmm. And inflation is an extremely regressive tax. Mm-hmm. It is it is it is a flat tax on money. Is <laughs> one way right. you could think of it. What's well, a tax on savers? It's a tax well. on savers. 
And in favor of uh, Bowers. In favor of Bowers, which Mm -hmm. is another In this case, the entire government, (laughs) right? And this also disproportionately affects people who don't have assets Mm -hmm. that would appreciate in value along with inflation. Mm -hmm. So those folks with, you know, those folks who are savers. Or don't own a home. Don't own a home, don't own – you know, stocks, bonds, all – well, not bonds. Bonds are fixed rate. But yeah. any sort of assets, you're going to be hit harder by this. Now, national economic planning in general hasn't been, as a rule, <laughs> a successful path to growth. Right. What we see sort of throughout the world is economic growth tends to trend with liberalization, mm-hmm. with Free trade, Mm -hmm. free and open markets, free open and competitive markets. You can spend your way to growth because, again, you know, you push a third of the value of the American economy into the American economy over the period of 18 months. That's going to show up (laughs) in those numbers. But that's not based on any sort of sustainable networks of specialization in trade. That's not based on actual needs and actual communities being satisfied by businesses that are actually responding to those needs, that is – that's just – Shifting money around. Shifting right? money yeah. around. You're not, you're not increasing production. Yeah. What is sort of the more – well, I guess the one thing we didn't address is there was a very tiny sliver in these bills that was actually dedicated to sort of like vaccine restriction. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the reason we, we've given that short shrift is it's just very little of these funds. Mm-hmm. Most of these, mm-hmm. you know, most of these funds are not. Yeah, one would about think COVID relief, COVID nineteen yeah. relief. That should be like item number one, right? Yeah. Getting treatment and prevention uh, as widespread as we possibly can. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, it's a small sliver of of any of these bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, so it's it's something that uh, is important, and I guess it's a merit of the bills, but it hardly explains uh, the high dollar value uh, going into any of these. So do you think this is a new trend? That this is like the new bipartisan consensus is that we consistently deficit spend, that we consistently try to shove money into people's pockets, that we I mean, UBI was something that Andrew Yang ran on. Yeah, that 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 we're looking for a future that's a much more sort of managed economy in the United States, where where the government funnels money into particular industries and initiatives, or into political cronies' pockets. Um, I mean, you know, I, there are definitely people who think that that's what is needed. There are people who simply want that um, uh, for other reasons. Um, and frankly, there is a long history. I mean, look at uh, corn or milk. <laughs> um, there's a long history of uh, even in the United States of of the government doing that. Uh, but this is this is, as you noted, uh, a much more massive scale. Um, I don't know if this is the new normal or not. I mean, there are there were a lot of worries. I think um, to some degree legitimate, but some of them not panned out over even just restrictions based on the pandemic. Oh, that once once these things are taken away, they're never going to come back. Well, a few months ago, basically, now if you are fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask wherever you go. Most, you know, restaurants are able to open to, you know, greater capacity. 
Uh, and Michigan, at least, which is one of the most restrictive, has been one of the most restrictive states. I believe uh, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe it was it's, uh, July 1st. Yes. Uh, all people, vaccinated or not, don't have to wear masks. All restrictions are supposedly going to be done. So I, I think the reason for that, I'm like, A, vaccination rates are good. Uh, in Michigan in particular, but across the United States. So there's, there's, there is an actual fundamental reality they're responding to. Uh, but B, the restrictions were very unpopular. And, and I think uh, they've proven to be a sort of thing that only had a limited political lifespan. Um, and we, I mean, we even saw that initially. We had these very strict lockdowns. And then we shifted over to, you know, it was stay home, save a life. Uh, if you're out in public, maybe we'll call the cops on you. You know, there was, you know, the the proverbial Karen. Uh, <laughs> my apologies to anyone named Karen, uh, but that's that's what's what's kind of become synonymous with. Um, but after three months, uh, well, the the line changed, and it was now wear a mask, save a life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it never went back to stay home, save a life. I mean, some people still said, oh, you know, shouldn't be doing X Y Z event or whatever, but. We never went back. Um, so the question for me is, is this actually economically sustainable? In the short term, maybe, especially if at some point we stop and things correct. But if we just keep doing this, there may come a point where the costs very palpably and obviously outweigh the benefits. Um, and as soon as people start feeling that in their everyday life, it becomes politically disastrous. Now, unfortunately, the point at which that happens may be past the point of no return for recovering from potential damage. Um, so I would I would hope that, you know, we all can be a bit more reflective about uh, these sorts of policies rather than kind of the knee-jerk support of, of course, I support American jobs and families and I care and I want COVID relief. Well, I want all those things too. Um, and I think even there is a role uh, for government relief uh, to some degree. But in, in no way going to criticize anyone uh, who said, hey, let's take a step back. Let's actually read through these bills rather than trying to push them through Congress. Let's see if we can maybe cut them down because a lot of this spending is not going to people who need it uh, in, in any conceivable way. And then we have a question with, well, what do we do in our own lives? And I think you, you had some great questions along these lines as well. Yeah. What, one of the hopeful things when you were talking about the, the sort of post-COVID normalization mm-hmm. of, of life, which has been very encouraging, is that we're already starting to see signs from some governors, such as suspending the extended unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration itself is receptive to ending those because mm-hmm. they're seeing the effects on the labor market. So already some of these things, um, it seems like we're getting a consensus that people realize, you know, these are these are really negative consequences and we need to transition in some way to getting out of this 18 months of, of flooding the system mm-hmm. um, with money. Now, there are a lot of people who are, you know, as we were talking about sort of like personal responses, there are a lot of people who see this, who have the sort of concerns that we do, and they got checks. Right. I and got, my wife and I, we got checks. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, we got deposits. I yeah. got I got, yep. I got, got deposits too. What do you do with that when you've yep. got – when you think these are sort of unsustainable economic policies – at least, are, or at least that they're complicated. They're morally complicated. Yeah. Right? 
um, not to mention economically complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's an, a great question is, you know, what is the responsibility of people receiving these checks? As, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we talk all about the stimulus. What about the stimulated? Yeah. What, <laughs> right? what, is, what is the moral responsibility of the stimulated? <laughs> right. Um, and here, I, I think, so let's, let's take a worst case scenario. Uh, you know, there, there are some who say, oh, this is just all bad um, morally, economically, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, there are there's an interesting passage uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching his disciples about money. In fact, there's a, a lot uh, of, yeah. about stewardship and money and economics and care for the poor, uh, or economic ethics, I should say. There's not actually strict economics, um, but uh, there's a lot of that just in the Gospels and throughout the scriptures. Uh, and Jesus at one point says, uh, "Use." he tells people to use unrighteous mammon, which is just money uh, to simplify, use unrighteous money to gain friends. Uh, and this is, it's kind of a bizarre statement. You know, it's, it's, is Jesus telling you to take the dirty money, <laughs> right? Um, and to some degree, looking at uh, some church fathers' interpretation of this passage, they kind of say yes. I mean, they're not saying like, go ahead and make money by any means. And I don't think Jesus is saying that either. So good for everyone for reading that correctly. But they're saying, look, if you've come by resources in morally questionable ways, but now you want to be a good Christian— well, use them for good, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, don't don't just like you know say, oh, this is all bad. Now I just you know I need to squander it. It can't possibly use for good. Say, well, you've got these resources. Maybe you got them in a bad way, or maybe they came from a bad source. What good can you do with them? Um, and I think that's a great starting place. Um, one one other thing uh, that gets a little more particular, um, but I think it speaks to one. Con- or a concrete way of interpreting that is uh, Clement of Alexandria, I know, he points out that Jesus doesn't say give, uh, right? He doesn't He doesn't just say, oh, make sure you give away all this unrighteous mammon, uh, although he certainly says, tells some people they should give away all they have. Um, but he says make a friend. Mm-hmm. And that's different. That requires a relationship. That requires a long intimacy, he says. Um, and so I think the best place to start is to ask, well, what are my relationships? What people depend on me? Mm-hmm. Um, I have kids. I have bills. That's what these relief checks were for. I don't think people should feel bad about spending them on that. They, you know, It doesn't mean we should unquestionably say that they therefore are good. There's all kinds of complicated ways, as we've just gone over, uh, that maybe they could have been better designed, better distributed, um, more targeted, more honed. Uh, maybe we could cut out all the fat of a lot of this cronyism, whatever the case, central planning, all of that. Well, people are getting checks and people have needs. And, and it's totally okay to spend them on the people in your lives that depend on you and that you love and care about. Uh, so I think the Christian has to start there, um, is you say, well, what, what good can I do with this? Um, and that's going to look different for a lot of different people, just as uh, I think we mentioned this on a previous podcast, but, you know, Christ says to the one rich young man, sell all you have and give to the poor. And yet Zacchaeus, who gives away only half of what he has, he says, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because different people have different callings and different places in life. And you have to look around yourself and you have to say, what are my relationships? Who are my friends? Who, are, who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. Um, and you start there. One of the encouraging things I've seen is we've actually seen in these last 18 months household debt go down 
in the mm. aggregate. So in a, in, a, in a bizarre sense, in the way that the government is acting increasingly irresponsible mm-hmm. and without any sort of uh, thought of the future, individual households are. Hmm. Um, people are paying down debt. That is one of the things we've seen. One of the things I've seen, and I need to dig into more of this reporting, is because churches were disrupted Absolutely. by this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of dire predictions that we would see donations to churches collapse. You know, individual churches, I'm sure, are struggling, but I have heard of many congregations that have been sustained by their parishioners during these difficult times. That's also an excellent use of resources. Using these resources to acquire new skills, new opportunities Mm -hmm. for service, using these resources to support businesses, particularly businesses that have been disrupted Mm -hmm. by the pandemic, I think is also a commendable uh, thing that people can do. Right. Those businesses have people who have families yep. <laughs> who work for them from, you know, the, the top all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, and, and you know, if it's somewhere you regularly uh, patronize, uh, as much as economic exchanges are not the same as friendships, you still have relationships uh, with the people, with the businesses, with the servers, the cooks, you know, whatever the, you know, however, whatever sort of business it is. Um, it, it might not simply be, you know, just just because on a balance sheet it looks like a simple exchange, uh, in reality, all of this is is complicated, right? Every person we meet is at least an opportunity for a relationship, and that, in, that includes our business transactions. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Dan. Um, I, I hope this is some as a way that this can help our audience to think through and process not only the economic effects, but the moral implications for a lot of this policy. Because it, it, it really has touched each and every one of us um, in the last 18 months. Absolutely. And its legacy, at least the fiscal legacy, will be with us for a long time. Mm-hmm. Thanks again. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja. Jaja.